Last week, Pastor Steve asked us an important question. He said, if you knew how something would end, would it change the way you went about it? Would you do something differently? And he gave us two examples. One was the slavery that North America engaged in during the 1800s, and the other was the Holocaust of the 1900s in Nazi Germany. This morning, we're gonna go a step further, sharpening the question just a bit by saying, if you knew how things would end in a particular situation, would you become part of the resistance? When slavery was at its peak in the South, there was a stream of devout, mostly religious people who formed an underground railroad that aided and abetted fugitive slaves, smuggling them into the North and in some instances across the river into Canada. Pastor Steve often references the first church that he pastored in Michigan, which was a part of this movement. It was built in 1835, just a little white clapboard church, but there was a trap door just behind the pulpit, and that trap door became the portal to freedom for dozens of fugitive slaves who were hidden in the church until nightfall when they would be helped across the border by members of that congregation. In a similar fashion, Abel Fogelberg's book, Conscience and Courage, Stories of Rescuers of Jews During World War II, tells of a network of such heroic people in France and Belgium and even Germany, people who accompanied Jews or hid them in their homes or employed them in their factories, helping to sneak them across the borders to safety. And in both of these cases, it occurs to me that these empires were overcome by two forces. First, the divine powers and rulers who are sovereign over any earthly regime. And secondly, the steady, devout, mostly quiet resistance that opposed what the empire stood for. Now this seems like an important insight to me because we live in a day when words have gone wild when everyone is fighting with them, with opinions or posts, tweets, retweets, it's a day when everyone has convictions, but very few people have courage. Convictions will stand and post one's thoughts, but courage will say them when they are not popular. Convictions are often stated in public, but courage is lived out privately, quietly, even when no one is looking. Convictions can change when the climate has changed or when the topic has changed. For instance, there are many hot buttons that we don't talk about much today anymore because they're not the popular thing, the thing in our focus. But courage quietly goes about a different way of life. So convictions are what you fight for. Courage is what you die for. Convictions then are words, but courage is action. Now hear me out, there is a time, I believe, for protest. A time to get noticed, to get heard by those in power, to ask them to reconsider their views. There's a time to leverage the laws that allow us to speak into the system, because this is America after all. It's not Nazi Germany or North Korea. We can say things, and at times, we should say things. But protest is a form of conviction. And so what strikes me about these resistance groups that I mentioned was not so much their conviction as their courage. It was the power of a mostly quiet, devout, active community that networked their energies in a sim similar singular direction. Which makes me wonder, what would happen if we 
gospeled our city in this way. Last week, we talked about this gospel, what it is and what it means, and we learned that it began early in the Old Testament, maybe as early as the Exodus, when God heard and he remembered his covenant, so he looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. But it is even more pronounced when God's people go into exile. This gospel, according to the prophets, is God breaking into this world and letting us know that from now on, things will not be as they seem. It is that God is on the move, bringing his kingdom with him, slowly subverting the powers and the ways of the empire, and that God will ultimately win the day because the end of his story has already been written. This is the gospel writ large over all of human history. And of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ fits perfectly within that. God breaks in. This is the incarnation. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and she will give him the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The word became flesh and dwelled among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. The son is the radiance of God the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God is on the move. Well, this is what the miracles of Jesus were all about. Jesus said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to recover sight for the blind, to release those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who was to come or shall we wait for someone else? And Jesus replied, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised and the gospel is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who is not offended by me. And finally, God will have the ultimate say. The death and resurrection of Jesus is not only the forgiveness of sin, but his power over sin and death. Mark says after his resurrection from the dead that Jesus told his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all of creation. And after he said this, he was taken up into heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And this same Jesus would appear to John 60 years later as he was exiled on the island of Patmos. John writes, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw someone like the son of man dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. His hair was white like wool and his eyes blazing like fire. His voice was that like the sound of a waterfall and his face shone like the sun. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys to death and hell. That's a pretty great summary of the gospel in such a short period of time. But if that's the gospel, the question becomes, what's the best way to preach it? And can we preach the gospel without Preaching. Perhaps the best way to preach the gospel is with a community of ordinary people like us who are living the gospel. 
And as we do, we bear witness to a way of life that is counterintuitive and countercultural, yet always redemptive. You see, to live the gospel is to practice it together as one body doing the same things at the same time, fitting within our context. It is to believe in it so deeply, in its claims and its values and its way of seeing the world, that it takes over our instincts and our desires and our dispositions. And so to live the gospel is to become the gospel. John Howard Yoder, Stanley Hauerwas, and Brian Stone wrote that the most evangelistic thing the church can do today is to be the church, to be formed imaginatively by the Holy Spirit through core practices which make us a distinctive people in the world, a new social option, the body of Christ. Theologian John Colwell writes that the life of a church and the life of the Christian is a retelling and reinterpreting of that gospel story because the world has no access to the gospel story other than as it is narrated in the life of the church. Through its service and being a witness, the church is a rendering of the gospel to the world. Newbigin said that he's come to believe that the primary impact we will have in this world will be the public life of the Christian congregation. And he asked the question, how is it possible that the gospel should be credible, that people should come to believe that the power which has the last word in human affairs is represented by a man hanging on a cross? And he goes on to answer the question saying he believes and suggests that the only answer is a congregation of men and women who actually believe it and live by it. And then it's interesting to note even Catholic scholar Michael Gorman writes that the gospel must become flesh and blood in and as the church, which is to say the church must become the gospel embodying God's salvation. And by salvation, he uses the words of Wesley, calling salvation a present deliverance from sin, a restoration of the soul to its primitive health, a recovery of the divine nature, the renewal of our souls after the image of God in righteousness and true holiness, in mercy and in truth. And so this is why it is so important for us to understand that the gospel is not simply a religious event, Rather, it is a secular event that involves entire nations and empires. It's not just something that involves your Sunday school class. It involves the United Nations. The gospel is not simply a list of propositions or beliefs. To be sure, it includes those beliefs, but it is a series of actions It frees prisoners, it recovers sight for the blind, it releases the oppressed and brings hope to those who are in darkness. So to preach the gospel then is to proclaim it with our mouths and to practice it with our habits. It's a campaign and this campaign involves the transformation of individuals, but it also includes the transformation of systems and traditions that imprison and oppress others. So as the church unites itself around this gospel, practicing it daily all over the city until the very assumption of the gospel reprograms our desires and our instincts. We become the gospel to the world. We don't just believe it or share it or preach it. We embody it. 
we live it. And it seems to me that this is the best form of evangelism for today's world. It's not an eloquent defense of a system of beliefs or a formal presentation intended to persuade, though those certainly do have their place. But perhaps the most evangelistic thing we can do in today's world is to become active in the places where the world is most broken and then faithfully live out an alternative reality. So who are these people? And what are they actually doing? We can look throughout the Old and New Testament for these answers, but today I want to look at Jesus' inaugural sermon recorded by Matthew. We know of it as the Sermon on the Mount. Because I believe it's here where we might begin to understand the type of person Jesus is calling us to be. Now, so often when we study the Sermon on the Mount, we get hung up because we get concerned with what Jesus is saying, and so much of what he is saying is controversial. This morning, I want to encourage us to read this story again through the lens of what is Jesus doing? And in order to do that, you have to go back to the Old Testament into what some scholars call the Second Temple Period, or the time frame in Israel's history that stretches between the 6th century BC and about 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. It's in this period of about 600 years where we see Israel filled with anxiety, hope, frustration, and political unrest and violence. And it's interesting to note that according to the prophets, the moral climate of Israel at that time was very similar to what we see in our own country today. For starters, the market favored the rich and marginalized the poor, the widows, the orphans, the aliens. The government was corrupt, the courts were bribed, the family was disintegrating, crime and violence filled the streets, cities were on fire, and yet amidst all of this, Israel remains religious. She celebrated her holy days, like we celebrate holidays, like Easter and Christmas. She gathered for worship, just as we have this morning. And the priests performed their rituals while the people prayed in silence. And at the rise of the sixth century, what was left of Israel, the Old Testament refers to that as Judah, Judah falls into the hands of Babylon. Jerusalem is burned, thousands are killed, property is confiscated, families are dissolved, young people are taken and placed into other nations where they can be indoctrinated by another regime. And we know of this period in the Bible as the exile, a time of great political unrest. And from the beginning of that time, there are zealots, those who conspired ways to get their nation back. They were like the Bible thumpers of their day, or I guess Torah thumpers would be more appropriate. And they were willing and wanting to reclaim Israel as their own. They were calling for a revival. There were others who collaborated with the new regime. And then there were the prophets. Most of those that we read about in the Old Testament were around at this time. And they were those who tried to give Israel the bigger picture. God had called a people into special relationship with himself, they said. He gave them their land. He addressed them in worship and he defined their character as people in terms of the law. And yet this wasn't working. Because neither Israel's worship nor her daily life was distinct from that of her neighbor's. 
And so there were no true witnesses to the nations concerning the character of their God. And the fate of their orphans and widows, the poor and the oppressed, the immigrants, was no different than that of any other nation surrounding them. And so God would create a new people. He would raise up a new generation, those who would understand about God what their ancestors could never comprehend. People who would commit themselves to obeying God's will in ways their forefathers never had. And the first step in this process was to send Israel into exile. It was a time of national disaster, and yet God protected them during this time, and he used it for his own purposes. He would give them prophets who would remind them of God's ways. And from those who obeyed his ways, God would form a remnant, a small number of faithful people who gathered over a century. And from that remnant, God would create a new community. We often read the prophets and see all the parts about the doom and gloom, but read it again because the prophets were quick to not only tell us that part of things, but also to remind Israel that there was a new future and a new hope for those who stayed true to God. The sad thing is, very few of them did that. Many continued to fight the new regime until they were put down. Others began to compromise with the new regime in order to get along. And so there were whole generations born who lived and died with Israel in exile and they never knew any other life. Those years turned into decades and the decades into centuries. And after a while, the words of the prophets began to sound hollow. I will restore you so that you may serve me. I will make you a fortified wall of bronze. Your enemies will be trampled under my feet. The Lord himself will appear and judge the nations. But none of this was happening. And so it was 70 years later that Israel was allowed to rebuild her temple. And yet, she still was not a fortified wall of bronze. She was still subject to her enemies. She just figured out how to get along with them at this point, to live next to them. And the Lord had still not appeared and judged the nations. Babylon had given way to Persia and Persia to Medes and then later to the Romans. And so this time before Jesus, this second temple period, was a time of political unrest of broken expectations, of promises that felt empty, of moral decline and oppression with 1% taking over 50% of the gross national product. Most of the people were landless. Most of them had abandoned the Torah. And so the conditions that once prevailed in Israel when her long story started had still not returned even though Israel had her temple. Now, mix into this cauldron of political unrest and injustice and anger, Jesus, who comes preaching, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Or as Mark recorded Jesus saying, repent and believe the gospel. Immediately after this, we read that Jesus goes through the villages in Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness, even casting out demons until large crowds began to follow him. They followed him indeed right up to the mountain where he, this crowd filled with disciples came, the Sermon on the Mount. This is where we're at. And there's an important distinction that happens here between these two groups. 
You see, one picture of the Sermon on the Mount is this massive group of people who came hoping to see Jesus at work. They heard about his miracles. They were impressed with what he could do. But I also think they thought he had something good to say. He had a new twist on some old stories that they'd heard from long ago. And yet there was a smaller group, the disciples who were within that larger crowd. The word disciple means student or learner, apprentice. And these were those who slowly moved towards the front, who came to Jesus while he spoke. And in this moment, we see Jesus stepping into the hole or into the gap between what the prophets had promised and what had actually happened so far. And he begins to form a new kind of person in this sermon. There are some who believe that Jesus' first sermon in Nazareth, when he rolled up the scroll and said, this day that scripture is fulfilled in your hearing, had already happened by the time he went into the Sermon on the Mount. And they believe this because in Luke's gospel, we read the Sermon on the Mount coming two chapters after this other sermon. Now, if that's true, then what Jesus was doing that day on the Sermon on the Mount, according to Luke, is telling his audience that the day of the prophets had come that the anointed one had arrived, that God had broken in and his kingdom was on the move and would eventually win the day. In Matthew, though, he was telling those who were gathered there who these gospel people were and what exactly they would be doing to bring about the kingdom of God here on earth. So we read about this gospel community and we try to imagine what exactly they were doing to save the world. And as we do that, I think we have to be careful to make note of a few things, to remember a few things so that we don't get frustrated. First, we need to remember that the kingdom almost never comes suddenly, but rather slowly and gradually. It almost always starts small and grows, often imperceptibly over time. The kingdom always begins within you, not outside of you in the form of laws or structures. And if you confuse this, if you try to alter things outside of yourself before you do the hard work of altering the interior, you will have problems almost 100% of the time. You'll have an authoritarian community where people do what they must rather than what they want to do because their wants have not caught up with the laws. Think about the Taliban or extreme legalism. Any environment or movement that tries to force new laws onto people who don't want them. Jesus says that the kingdom is always contextual. It doesn't look the same way in every discipline or generation the kingdom is always countercultural, but it is absolutely always redemptive. It always restores and renews. It always makes things like they were meant to be, like they were in the beginning. So you can't go into this thinking that you're going to enforce this sermon on people who aren't ready yet to hear it. Secondly, we have to remember what Jesus was doing here. He was creating an alternative community. Borrowing heavily from Isaiah 61, he is announcing, living, and inaugurating a new social order that is an actual alternative, an alternative that is inevitable. He is recruiting a new kind of person to work alongside the one that the Spirit of the Lord is upon to bring about this slow, gradual, inward, but thorough reversal of things. So in other words, he's unleashing onto the world a community that is shaped by the conscience of Isaiah 61. 
This community is three things. It is, as we said, countercultural. The people who are a part of this community are humble. They are vulnerable. They are self-forgetful, spiritually discontent. They are tender and simple, peaceful and nonviolent. They are persecuted and they suffer well. I think we should note here that uh, a person can be a Christian and not be any of those things naturally. If you're like me, you've noticed that you can come across someone who loves Jesus a whole lot and yet they are not self-forgetful or humble. They are not peaceful. Not all Christians I know suffer well when they are persecuted. So what Jesus is defining here is not simply a Christian, at least not as we think of it, but rather a new kind of humanity. He's not talking about who goes to heaven here. He's talking about what kind of person it will take to change the world. And this alternative way is so contrary to how things are, to how the world seems to work in our minds, that I think oftentimes we can't imagine ourselves being these things and getting anywhere in life, winning anything in life. It's as if you can hear the athletes in the room saying, there's no way I want to be meek because second place is first loser. <laughs> you can hear the politicians among us saying, there's no way I want to be self-forgetful because don't you remember what happened last election? Or military members saying, I'm not going to be peaceful or nonviolent. Sometimes we need to give war a chance. But once more, a couple of things have to be kept in mind. Jesus isn't telling us to be these things. He's telling us that these kinds of people are closer to the kingdom of God than the rest of the population. He's saying, I know what people are like, whatever position they might have in this world, and I know what is most valuable in the kingdom of God, and these people are more valuable to the kingdom than others. If these words seem contrary to what it takes to succeed in your realm of life, perhaps it's because you don't know what these words actually mean. Meekness, for example, does not mean weakness. It means controlled strength because the term was used in the first century to describe the breaking of a stallion or the bridling of a wild animal. So far from calling our athletes to be weak, Jesus is describing people who have bridled their strength their political, their economic, or their raw power into channels that give life to another. In addition to being countercultural, this community that Jesus describes is favored. Much of the material from the second temple period, which includes some of the later prophets and some of the Proverbs, uses the word blessed, which provides the context for what Jesus means here. Scott McKnight says bluntly that this word blessed is a blessed problem because there's no good way to translate it. And so whether you're using the Greek word makairos or the Hebrew Aramaic word that Jesus more likely used, baruch, it's hard to translate the meaning into a single English term. So John Pennington has done well to combine two big ideas into one. That of God's favor, which comes from the Old Testament, and that of happiness or virtue, which came from the Greek philosophers. And he's translated it as flourishing or satisfied and complete. 
But the main idea here is that God will recognize people who have these dispositions, those who are humble and vulnerable and self-forgetful, and he will get behind them and he will move them into places where they can flourish. But that may not always be at the front. Those people may not always win. They may get pushed to the margins or even be forgotten by the 1% who will write history But if it seems like they cannot possibly succeed, I encourage you to remember that Jesus is speaking here with the end in mind. And that's the third observation about the community, and that is that it is redemptive. When Isaiah is describing in chapter 61 is the way things will be in the end. So when Jesus lifts these ideas, when he puts them out there into a charter for a new humanity, he is speaking with the end in mind. He's saying, however far the proud and the powerful seem to go in your world, remember that the poor in spirit will actually own the kingdom of God. Whenever you hear of people promising to pay back their enemies for wounds inflicted upon them, remember that comfort will actually come to those who are vulnerable. Whenever you are seeing people promote themselves, remember it is those who forget themselves in the service of others that will actually inherit the earth. And he goes on and on. This is all reminiscent of what we read in the song of Philippians that says, he humbled himself and became obedient. Therefore, God hath highly exalted him. And I'm reminded of Proverbs 1 and Proverbs and 1 Peter where it is written that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is where the future is going, Jesus says. Now, you might look at this list and argue, but that's not the way things are. Because if I do this, I will lose every single time. But you have to remember that this is the way things are going, even if they are not this way now. And so it raises that question again. If you knew how things would end, what would you do differently? And would you be part of the resistance You see, this community that's called into being by Jesus' words here is the way out of exile. It's the new community God promised he would form at the end of time. It is the new humanity, the remnant. And Jesus says, if you live like this, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we are right to think of these words as a call to witness, but I wonder if we ought to examine again what kind of witness this will be because it is a witness that preserves the world from total decay. That's the job of salt. It's a witness that reveals to the world the way the things are going to be in the end. It provides light to us on that truth. These people are the city on the hill, perhaps the one that the world is streaming into according to Isaiah's vision. So if you were here last week and at the end of the sermon you said, I'm in, I'll be a part of this community, this different kind of person who is humble and vulnerable and self-forgetful and spiritually discontent, then you might be asking the question, what does this community actually do? And that will be the focus of our series in the next several weeks. But to give you a preview, I believe that this community will be filled with peacemakers 
people who will de-escalate the conflict, people who will be more tolerant of others' mistakes, who will listen well, and who will intervene between rivals. It will be a community of people who keep their promises at home and at work in every aspect of their lives. They will be bound to their word. These people will make room for those who are left on the margins, for the poor, the powerless, and for those who are different than themselves. They will be more charitable and they will welcome those who are different from themselves to their table. This community will be filled with people who carry crosses by helping others who suffer. They will come alongside the victims of tragedy or of someone else's terror and they will restore to them justice that has been lost and they will be people who share hope with those who are lost in this fallen world. They will give meaning to their losses and they will help them by giving them a picture of the promise of a full and future life. These are just some of the things this community will do, this new community, and they will do it every day, habitually, in ways that fit the context of their lives and work. This is a steep calling. And so I wonder if you're still in. Because if you are, you must know going into this series that I believe it will cause us to reevaluate old and comfortable traditions. It will call us perhaps to change structures that are a part of the old power and to align them in ways that are closer to the kingdom of God. So think about it. And this morning, if you are still in, I wanna invite you to read with me the words of Isaiah 61, putting yourself in those words. If you're in, will you stand and read these words with me? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed us to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent us to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for those in captivity, to recover sight for the blind, to release from darkness those in their prisons, to proclaim the beginning of the Lord's favor. He has anointed us to comfort those who mourn to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. In his name, we will rebuild the cities and restore places long devastated. Aliens and foreigners will work in our fields and in our factories. We will be called priests of the Lord and named ministers of our God. Instead of shame and disgrace, we'll receive an inheritance of everlasting joy.